0: Hi, I'm Meredith.
1: Hi, I'm Joseph, and you are listening to Are You Waiting for Permission? It's a podcast for
0: those who don't want to wait any longer. Hello. Hello, good afternoon to you, Joseph oh, it's Bennett.
1: Always so great to see you, Meredith Grandi. I love, love, love Tuesdays when we record.
0: I know, I do. And we are recording right now in this holiday season, wedged between Christmas and the New Year's. We're about to enter into 2022. This is our mm. last recorded podcast <gasps> of the we year. We the
1: best for last. Yes, that we did. True. Yeah. And, so uh, my intention is to get through this episode without crying, because I have a, f- have a feeling I might get tearful today. Oh, I love that. Up.
0: Okay. Yeah. I will hear, I if I could hand you a Kleenex, I would. Mm. So I will virtually through the Zoom, <laughs> the Zoom window hand you a, a Kleenex.
1: Thank you. Does that sound good? So okay. today we are honored to sit down with James Pierce, who goes by JAPE, J-A-P-E, He's the founder of an amazing charitable organization called Phone Credit for Refugees, which I am a supporter of. They provide phone credit to refugees around the world who are currently living without secure shelter, they're making an unsafe journey, or they are being held in detention. And I wanna start off by saying, Jabe, that I honor and acknowledge and really freaking appreciate the work that you're doing because I have a feeling that it's not easy and I have a feeling that it is desperately needed more today than ever so welcome
2: um thanks very much yeah um yeah it is it is very much needed i think um i feel uh, quite a sense of pressure to um to do as much as having started to do as much as i can kind of having made a start on this on this thing um it seems like for some reason nobody was doing this 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 tiny part this tiny thing phone credit you know people were thinking about other things and um since we started thinking about this one and it, and it seems like we're the main people who are i feel like there's a there's a weight on our shoulders to stretch it as far as we can
0: i'm curious what was the seed that planted this idea how did you get involved from the beginning
2: i i mean I was not somebody who was very interested in 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 charity or causes or um or refugees particularly I didn't really think about it at all in my life and it was in um, 2015 there was um it was in the news a lot because it was kind of the first year when the stuff in Calais with um, refugees kind of traveling through France and trying to make it to the UK that had really been in the news a lot and it's it's an issue that divides people isn't it? it kind of um people tend to be very Um, strongly of the opinion on one side or the other like we like we have to save all the refugees or you know we should stop all the refugees and there doesn't seem to be much in the middle and um, so I guess I was just curious about it something that's that's really divisive like that I find interesting academically as a guy who's like that has nothing to do with my life you know it's just purely academic to me it's not something that's affected me in any way but a friend of mine was going over to volunteer in Calais in the camp over there so I just they were trying to fill up a bus, like a mini bus, to make it like um, cost efficient for everybody who was going as a volunteer. So I was like, okay, you know, that would be interesting, and that's kind of the point, really. I guess I went as um There's a word for it; they call them voluntourists, um, you know, which is, I, I guess, it talks. It's a lot like when people go and do a gap year in Africa and go and build a school or something, and and people kind of use that cynical word. But for me, it was that's exactly what I was. I was a voluntourist. Um, I went over there just to look to look at what was happening and um and with that kind of mindset when i got there i was extremely unprepared i think for what i found which was an absolutely you know unimaginable kind of human humanitarian disaster um to give you a kind of idea of the level it was i mean there was uh maybe like 75 80 percent of the people in the camp had shoes and the others just didn't they just kind of were barefoot and this was um November and there was like kids on their own walking around who were like not properly dressed. They were on their own, no parents. The whole camp was kind of civilized in places. You know, it had like restaurants and and um, things that you know people had made it into like a small town. But the, the kind of brutality of that place was just unbelievable. I mean, it it, it really was just so shocking to walk into this huge emergency um, and to, and the, to see the kind of level of police violence there. Just that whole experience was was such a shock to walk into for all of us as kind of idiots. you decided we would just go and have a look at this, this thing. And as soon as you're there, you, you can't help, but feel, um, it's like, um, if you were like driving down the motorway and there was a massive car accident and you were right there when it happened, you would be in some way involved in that because you are there when it happened. And it felt like that, you know, it's like we'd walked in on this car crash and we all just had to like, start picking people up and, you know, bandaging or whatever it was you do in that kind of emergency so we were running around fixing tents and trying to um trying to help people get clothes and just you know do whatever volunteers were doing out there and um and afterwards when you when i came away from that place it wasn't the kind of place you could not go back to because you uh, there was an afghan there uh, an afghan um, guy i was talking to we were trying to ask what his story was and how he'd come to be there. And, you know, he was just calling us like window shoppers was the word he used. And he was right, you know, because we he was like, what's the point? You know, you like I, these white volunteers come to the jungle uh, every day, every week. And they come and ask me what my story is. And it hurts me to tell you about my story. It's upsetting for me to tell you about my story. And then you go away and nothing changes. So what's the point? What's the point of me telling you my story? And this guy was like really angry. and. I kept in touch with that guy and uh, like his phone number and stuff. And before we left the jungle, um, after like four days, before we went back to the UK, I found him a pair of shoes at the warehouse because he didn't have any shoes and like went to the jungle and it was such a desperate, if you walk through the jungle with a new pair of shoes, you would have like everybody be coming out of their tents, like trying to speak to you being like, whose shoes are those? Can I have those shoes? I need those shoes. Like my brother needs those shoes. And, um, so I got these shoes through this busy camp, kind of hiding them under my jacket. Yeah, and, and gave them to this guy. And he was, like, really overwhelmed. But I'd remembered him and was like, wow, you actually did come back, bring me some shoes. You know, I can't believe that. After he'd, like... But <laughs> even with the people there, I mean, it's just... Even when they're angry at you, even that guy, when he was angrily saying, you know, I don't want to tell you my story, he's like, now you will come in and eat with me. Now you will have a cup of tea. Mm. It's like, you know, he's mm. like angrily telling you that you will sit down and, and, you know, do the customary kind of things with him. Mm. And I stayed in touch with him and I stayed in touch with a couple of other people um, after I came home and I'd speak to them on Facebook and would say to those people, next time I come back to the, to the jungle, what can I bring you? You know, do you want some like waterproof trousers or do you want like clean underwear or like what what is the thing that you, you kind of need in that situation and uh, two of the people I spoke to said that they needed phone credit and I was like, okay well I can probably come and buy that in France and they' were like, no no, we use a UK SIM card which um, uh, you can use a kind of UK SIM card in most of Europe or you certainly could at that time and um, a lot of volunteers had just distributed all these SIM cards. so all the refugees had all these UK SIM cards. But they were paying, you know, crazy money on the black market in the jungle to get phone credit. And so I was just like, yeah, no problem. I can just go on a website and put the money in and it will be on your phone, you know, from from my bedroom. I don't need to come to Calais to do that. And um, so I did that for like two people. And then I thought, yeah, this is this is going to get expensive. So I decided I'd just make a Facebook group. And in that Facebook group, I added those refugees who I knew. There was like just four or five of them, I think, by that time told them to tell their friends. And then I added all my friends to the Facebook group and was like, right, you know, when one of these guys needs credit, anybody can kind of put their name forward. And um, that was how it began. Really, um, you know, no security, no, no safeguarding. No, like, I didn't think about it. I didn't think ahead. I didn't plan it to be like a big thing. I was just like, yeah, these guys need phone credit. And like, I don't mind buying credit for a couple of guys like every month, but there's like more people who need it. And I know more people
1: who would probably help if they need. So, yeah, that's
2: that's how I started.
1: Mm. A really beautiful example, Meredith, somebody not waiting for permission, right? Yeah, (laughs) it's like showing up when there's a need. Can you describe for our listeners where you're referring to when you say Calais?
0: Yeah,
2: so Calais is um, not even a very big town in northern France and Calais and Dover uh, is the shortest Distance between France and the UK. It's a 22 mile stretch of water um, that separates France and the UK. And in fact, the UK border is actually in Calais, legally speaking. Um, so when you come from, when you, when you travel from the UK to France, if you go on a ferry or there's also a train you can take, you, you cross into France. Uh, like when you get to France, you're still in the UK legally. And then after, I don't know, it's like 100 meters or something, you cross the border officially, officially and then you're in France. So because the France looks after the UK border, it's um, this, this area, this spot where the tunnel is and where the ferries are, and also a little bit further down the road uh, in Dunkirk, which is more famous from uh, World War Two, um, there is this, these hotspots where the refugees and, and migrants who have travelled across Europe perhaps um, failed to get asylum elsewhere, or maybe they have family in the UK or they speak English and that's why they're kind of wanting to come to the UK they congregate in these in these hotspots. And um, from those places, they attempt in various means to get into the UK without without having any papers. So they'll either kind of hide on lorries or they, um, the more recent one has been a lot of them are coming in boats across the channel. Um, but yeah, anyway, they can. And actually, I mean, at that time, there was a guy who, and possibly more than one guy, but certainly he walked the length of the channel tunnel, which is just madness, you know, on a, uh, electrified train rails. And um, yeah, people, lots of people died there. You know, there was, I think at the, the kind of peak of it, there was something like a death every month or every couple of months, somebody would die on the, on the highway or, you know, on the, on the boat. So obviously there's been more deaths recently. So it's it's a pretty crazy place. And also the political situation in Calais particularly, uh, it's it's been very tense because there's these big migrant camps that have been there for a number of years. And it's there's a tense situation with the locals. For example, you've got all these very desperate people living in a camp there. So if you had like a pile of firewood in your garden, like it would probably be gone because they would come in, somebody would take it. And, um, you know, it's stuff like that, that is kind of, I mean, that's probably a minor thing. I'm sure there's been more, Mm -hmm. but um, for example, it's kind of made, it's quite a right-wing politically town now, and they have quite a right-wing, I think they have like a 60% national front vote there or something. And you can feel it when you're there, the the border force are are funded by the uk because it's it's our border as i kind of explained and the the police there are the the policy is essentially kind of zero tolerance for these migrants being there you know they're trying to move them on and and they do that through a number of kind of hostile measures to do that so it's i mean i what i do now is spread out to other places like greece and lebanon but i think there's something particularly about calais that's that's different because it's not a recognized refugee camp they're not allowed to be there not permitted to be there and um, they you know are moved on um every every couple of days or every day sometimes they come and slash all the tents with knives confiscate everybody's mm. belongings mm. take all their clothes from them um spare clothes that is but when i was there i mean i saw things like you know they would just indiscriminately pepper spray uh, refugees including the young children toddlers they would all be pepper sprayed along with the adults it was just you know seeing that was 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 the most shocking thing for me it was it was something that I couldn't come back from mentally seeing not that I I myself you know traumatized in the way that the people experiencing that would would be traumatized but to, to know that that was happening in kind of western Europe on my doorstep was a shock you know I kind of thought yeah I don't know what I thought but I just hadn't imagined that there would be this two tier of human beings you know that you could kind of meet people in the camp and I would realized for the first time myself that there's these human beings in the camp and then you would come out of the camp and um see the way the police behaved and and just you would realize that a lot of other people hadn't realized that they were human beings in that camp either you know i've gone in there and woken up myself and never even thought about refugees before that but um suddenly i had you know i had friends in there this was happening to my friends um once i'd been there a few times and, and kind of got to know people Um, Yeah, it got personal then. And I think it's personal for everybody who is
1: involved in it. Wow, thank you. Thank you. I'm curious, you started with one man. Can you share his first name? Uh,
2: His name was Adele, the the gentleman I was. Yeah.
1: So you started with Adele. And have you kept track of how many people you have funded with phone credit since Adele?
2: Yeah, the the um, statistics are kind of hard to work out now because um, I mean, yeah, we've kept a track of it. It's all kind of been done on spreadsheets to start with, and then we kind of went onto a, a custom database, and it's got more and more complicated. So we have done about ninety six thousand top ups, um, sort of individual phone top ups, and I don't know how many people that is because like some people had it several times each. But I'm going to say it's it's maybe like 30,000 people, something like that.
0: That is, um, that's phenomenal. So it has grown tremendously. Uh, And you mentioned that you're also doing work at, you said Greece and where were were the other locations? Lebanon. Lebanon.
2: Yeah. Lebanon's a big one. So, um, obviously the Syrian refugee crisis is not Mm -hmm. so much in the news now as it was obviously when the Syrian conflict was, um, I guess at its peak, but the situation in Syria remains very unstable. And a lot of the people who have been displaced from Syria, um, just don't have any money and don't have anywhere to go back to. So if you imagine you, you, you're in a situation where you had to run from your home very quickly, and your home has probably been physically destroyed, and all of your assets have been destroyed. All of your bank account no longer exists, and you're you've been living in a tent for eight years in across the border in in Lebanon. There's, it's very hard for you to go forwards, and it's very hard for you to go back. And so there's these these big sprawling camps like in the in the Becca Valley, for example. Um, all along the kind of corridor between um, Lebanon and Syria, where there's just tens of thousands of people, you know, and, and a lot of the people who are there, there's a demographic of kind of older people and children and, and kind of uh, the ones who weren't able to travel on any further, you know, the ones who were too sick or too infirm or just wouldn't have been strong enough to, you know, to swim or whatever it was that would have been needed um, or mm-hmm. couldn't afford to go as well. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of people there with disabilities and there's no provision for them you know it's it really is yeah p- people uh there's this, this thing about um, refugees that I say why didn't they stay in the first safe country and I'm like well these, these guys did there's like 65,000 people in this valley who stayed in the first safe village not the first safe country but they got across the mountain and stayed in the first village they found and uh yeah it's unimaginable it's it's Uh, the temperatures there they get to like i forget what it is i'm gonna get it wrong if i say it but it's you know it's in it's deep into the minus figures in the winter and way up into the you know like the hottest part of of the country in the summer but it's got these extreme temperatures and people just live in under a tarpaulin you know it's crazy and i I can't believe how long they've been there as well so that's that's you know that's a big area we support and greece as well it's another as people know there's a lot of camps in greece
0: you had other individuals reach out to you to um, help mentor them in starting something similar, like in the U.S., for example. Or are you pretty much the hub?
2: You mean um, to help refugees, well, yeah. so like in been, other countries? Yeah, I mean, there's been a couple of things. So actually, somebody's um, reached out to us before for the particular model we use for fundraising. So what happened with this group as it got going, you know, like uh, it started off, I had my my refugee friend, my refugee friends, my personal refugees. As my mom often says, oh, you're refugees. And I'm like, yes, mm. yes, my personal <laughs> refugees belong to me. Mm. And uh, so there's these guys in the group who are supporting. And then it's like, oh, you know, can my friend join? And it's like, yeah, yeah. OK, yeah. He's in the camp here. Yeah, we can let him join. And then somebody else is like, oh, can my sister join? Yeah, yeah, no problem. We can get her credit. Yeah, come on in. And then as we kind of like, you know, I've only got so many Facebook friends, not that many as it happens. I'm not that popular. I only had so many Facebook <laughs> friends. And how are we going to get more people to donate phone credit? So we got all of those uh, to use this feature that Facebook used to let you do, where you could just add people to a group. And the next time they click into Facebook, they're just in the group. You know, they didn't have to agree. They were just in there. But um, out, then we would get those people, like the ones of those who were like, oh, this is cool. I'll stay. Can you add your friends and get them to do the same? And we just did this over and over and over and over again. Um, and so as, as the refugees would tell their friends and those people would join the group, we would have this kind of race of how quickly we could tell our friends to get them in the group. So you can always keep the donors growing as fast as you keep the people coming into the group. And uh it didn't take long before we, like, realised that you couldn't have, like, Uh, just a person saying I need phone credit and then somebody else saying oh well I'll top it up for you because like the safeguarding and the data management and like people didn't know how to use the web top up websites and we were like explaining it to people and it got to a stage where we're like we're gonna have to manage this like we're gonna have to um you know we're gonna have to process all of the requests and collect all of the money in a pot and like send the credit ourselves and um like that didn't take long that was like a couple of months in but it's it was after that point that it was there was no going back, <laughs> I think, like up until that point, we could have gone, oh, that was cool, you know that was a cool thing we did, but then as soon as we set that up, you know, and the money was coming in, and the requests were coming in, and like none of it was slowing down, and like we were not we did not have the brakes, and we did not have the accelerator, we were just at the wheel, that was all we had, just the wheel mm. and um you know it was just a bit of a crazy thing,
1: thank you, thank you, Meredith. I am. I'm top of mind with the hero's journey. and We've (laughs) talked about that before on our podcast and part of the hero's journey, Jabe, if you're familiar with it, or even if you're not, but there is a reluctant hero, somebody who like yourself says, I don't want to go on this trip. I don't want to, I don't know anything about refugees. Right. (laughs) And then here you are all these months later, all these years later, volunteering right you don't receive any money for this no it's all
2: volunteer run. i mean whether that will ever change you know at some stage in the future we could look at that but um yeah it's all been volunteer run for six years now
1: Mm.
0: incredible that's incredible and how many volunteers do you have now helping you
2: uh, I, I mean, I, I, it's bad. I don't know the exact number because it does kind of fluctuate. You know, people sometimes yeah. get long-term people. Sometimes people do it for a short while, but maybe around 20, um, okay. something like that. Cool.
1: And can you explain to us what a conga line is on Fridays?
2: <laughs> yeah, I'd be delighted <laughs> to. So as, as, we, um, as we took over, you know, as I was saying, so we became the, there's three types of people in our Facebook community. There's, there's refugees coming to ask for credit. There's people joining the community because they want to help refugees and pay for that phone credit. And then there's the admins, the volunteers. What the volunteers do is they um, every request that comes in, we collect various information from that person to check that they are an eligible person. And we can we kind of invented various ways of doing that. One of the ways we do is um, GPS because that shows us where they are. So it's like, okay, this person's in Calais. They're in the place where we know where there's tents, you know, okay, that's they look good. Um, but there's other stuff we do, like um, the hand photo, which is a really crude way of saying, um, prove to me where you are. So if you say, like, you can show me a GPS in, I don't know, Calais, for example, then most people would then be able to take a photo of their hand next to their tent or like a couple of photos on demand to show us what it looks like around where they're living and inside their tent, outside their tent. And that's our way of checking the the the, we can get a rough idea of the age and gender of the person from looking at their hand without having to ask for their face, which is kind of a bit of a no-no. Um, we can ha- have a bit of an assessment of what kind of situation they live in. And also, we can check that they are really where they say they are as they're speaking to us by kind of looking, is it the right time of day? Um, does the daylight look right? And those kinds of clues. Um, so we developed all these ways of vetting these people and we put them on a waiting list. And um, then we have to find them credit before we handled that you know like refugees came in and they would ask for credit it's like nobody was saying they were going to get credit you know it's like if the volunteer comes forward you'll get credit and it will work but when we said we're going to put those guys on a waiting list like across loads of different languages um communicating to people like what's happening and why they're going on a waiting list and why we've asked them for all of that information it's like by the time you've put them through that application you kind of have to give them credit you know you can't just say you might get credit this is like this is serious now like there's these people there's like a hundred of them on a waiting list and they need phone credit and we don't have any phone credit to give them we have none all we can do is this facebook community to go to this facebook community and say guys we have a 100 refugees on this waiting list waiting for a phone top up and we don't have any way of paying for it can you donate us some money and we realized that facebook has this algorithm where if you post something and lots of people click like and lots of people comment then it starts showing that post to more people so we said uh, we'll make a post saying can you make a donation we do this every friday as a weekly thing can you um can you make a donation and leave a comment telling us that you've made a donation and that creates this kind of um snowballing effect where every time somebody donates even something very small and then they comment it means somebody else sees that post pop up in their news feed and then they donate and they leave a comment and that causes somebody else to and, and so on. And over the weeks and the months, as we've got everybody buying into this and doing it once a week, every Friday, that has kind of snowballed on itself. So we have maybe like um, two or 300 people who every week will turn up always. And they'll always comment on it. And that in itself is enough to push it along to mm. maybe an extra thousand people will see it and so on. And and so it, it's a kind of a weekly ritual and we call it a conga because it's like a kind of virtual conga line where people, mm-hmm. everyone joins on the back and the more people join in, the more people see it and the more people join. And yeah, that's the idea. Oh,
0: that's, that's incredible. You've created a, a community that returns again yeah. and again. That's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. I am curious, Jake, because I am not a Facebook user. How do people okay. who are not on Facebook find you?
2: I mean, that's a tricky one. And, and I think, the, the easiest answer to that is that they often haven't and that's maybe like um you know we have a website people can come and find us at um, pc4r.org um pc the number four um, or, um people can come and find the website and donate but i i think there are people within our community who and some of the service users too you know not all refugees use facebook but a lot of them will set up a facebook account to come and be part of it because it is it's weird. it's, you know, I don't know if I'd have chosen that route. If I like, if I could look back and like, how would I do this? How would I build this charity? And the answer is, it wouldn't be like this. I don't know how it would be, but I don't think mm-hmm. it would be like this, you know. And it's just because it grew from a Facebook group. It wasn't like I said, how am I going to set up a charity? I like, I never asked that question. If I'd have right. asked that question, I might have thought, God, can I, can I set up a charity? Mm-hmm. That's when I'd have been, you know, waiting for permission. Like you sure, guys are talking sure. about either, you know, but I didn't think of it like that. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't plan it out that way. So I think for, you know, the only way you can be involved in that community is to join Facebook, but I would say it's a hundred percent worth it. You know, even if that's all you do on Facebook, just come in that Mm. community. Um, It's a great place.
1: So I'm going to ask a ridiculous question, but I'm kind of known for that. So I'm just going to stick with my reputation shape. And that is, why is phone credit important? If people don't have enough food and they don't have shoes and they don't have enough clothes, what is it about having phone credit that, well, I don't want to give an answer. What is it about
2: that? Okay. So, I mean, I, I guess, um, and this is the tricky bit, and I have to be honest, is like, I'm a guy at the gut time of my job, I was a care worker. That's what I was doing. Like, um, so I just went as a care worker and a part-time musician. I wandered into the Calais jungle and I said, what do you guys need? And they said, we really need phone credit. And I was like, okay. And like, after what I'd seen, like they could have said, like they could have said anything. They could have said, I Mm -hmm. I really need like a a red hat or like, it could have been anything. And I would have found it for them. Cause like, I was just so heartbroken really by what, what I'd experienced there or witnessed. But phone credit I've learned since has, you know, a range of practical applications. You tend to see it as this luxury item. But um, if you imagine a situation where, A lot of people um, think of refugees as being very poor and running from poverty. And actually, for most of the refugees, particularly in northern Europe, that isn't really the case. Um, What tends to happen is they are often very middle class or like have a degree of life savings or something that they have been able to use to, to exchange for people smuggling to get that far north in Europe. So they were often quite well off or at least you know in the kind of middle class bracket when they left their homes and they are not people who would have not had phones you know like everybody even like people in quite poor poverty parts of the world would have a mobile phone even a smartphone a basic smartphone these days and if you have to leave your home in a hurry and Mm. you've got only what you can carry you grab your phone that's going to be like the first one because you need your gps on there to stay in touch with your family as well to keep up on the latest news and to find out like you know, it's really your, your kind of um, thing for information. Um, it's the only thing you have. It's the only tool you have. You know, you don't have a computer anymore. You don't have any of, any of the resources that you previously had, and you can carry a phone very easily. So for most refugees, it is their their single most important possession. You know, it's what they've, they've got their photos of home on it. It's, it's their life. In a, you know, we all live in our phones. We have our lives in our phones. And you imagine if you have your entire life, you know, your job's gone, your bank's gone, your savings are gone, your house is gone. A lot of your family are no longer up there that phone is it becomes everything um i interviewed somebody in calais once about the project and he's described the phone as being his little brother he said that mm-hmm. this phone is my little brother I, I like look after it as if it's my brother if anything happens to this phone like you know i just couldn't let anything happen to this phone and um yeah i mean people think of it as this luxury item but actually a lot of the basic stuff can't happen without phone credit. You can't register your asylum claim in Greece, for example, without your phone. It's all done online. Um, you can't communicate with the UNHCR if you're in Lebanon. If you don't have a phone, you can't get any heating fuel. You can't get your food rations because you have no way to sign up and join the registration for it. Um, you can't find your way to the camp. You can't find out any information about where it's safe to go and where isn't safe to go that everything is on your phone, you know, it's, it's, um, it's the start, you know, it's not an extra.
1: Mm. So while I'm remembering, I want to give a shout out to Donna Lister, my friend who I met in Mexico, but she lives in the UK. She's one of your neighbors and she's the one who turned us on to phone credit for refugees. So thank you, Donna. And what I'm mostly loving about this project is that there are millions of us, Jape, that are like, I'm powerless. I can't do anything. What can I do? There's millions of people that are refugees. It's hopeless. What can I do? We can fucking give them phone credit. That's what we could do. Right? Like,
2: yeah. I mean, I I think this idea when people say, oh, it's like, you've put it very well. There's millions of people, you know, what can I do? I can't do anything. But I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. It's like, there's millions. I can do anything. Like, Mm. it doesn't matter where I start. There's no, like, there's no limit. I'm not going to run out of people to help. And I can mess it up. I can get it wrong. I can practice. I can try again. Like there's just a, a limitless canvas of people to go and try and do something nice for, you know, and you, you just start anywhere. I guess um, it's easy to say that now, from my point of view, knowing that when I started, um, I wasn't looking at the long journey. Like people say, "Ah, oh, like this, the long journey starts with the first step and those kinds of proverbs and things. But it's like I took that first step because I hadn't looked up. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I didn't know there was a journey in front of me but maybe that's the answer you know maybe I just just start somewhere it's that it's got to be the answer is not it you know like uh, I play music and like if I would never have thought I could play guitar but like I learned a chord or two and then I could kind of start unpicking and doing the next chord and you just build each thing on the shoulders of the last thing you know
0: what you started with was curiosity yeah you, you had a healthy dose of curiosity Which is what led you from one thing to the next, which what led you from learning a chord to learning guitar.
2: Yeah. 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 I think it's, I think it's allowing yourself to fall in to anything, you know, Um, if somebody could have said to me like, Oh, how would you like to make your mark on the world? Like, and I hadn't, you know, she said this like five, you know, six, seven years ago, what would you like to do? You know, you could be the phone credit guy. I'd be like, you know, I don't know anything about phones. Like, I'm not what are you talking I'm about not, like I'm not even like very technical. Like, do you know what's really funny is like I didn't even use a smartphone for many, many years. And like even after I started this project, right, I had one of those like old cracked Nokias, of like a brick phone in my pocket, right? And when I went out to Calais, refugees laughed at me. They were like, "My phone is so much better than yours."
1: <laughs> but, oh, um,
0: there's so yeah. there's poetic justice in there. Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> and the other the other thing that you brought forth, I'm assuming based on your story, Jape, is that there were two parts. You listened and you heard, right? So you listened to what people needed. I need phone credit. You heard that. And then instead of just leaving, right, being, what did you call it? A window shopper?
2: Yeah, that's what he called me. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Instead of being a window shopper, you're like, I can do that. Like, I, I can just do that.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I was ready to do something. And, um, and I was going, you know, like, because I went there in, I think my first trip was in November, 2015. And the project started, the phone credit thing started in February. So there were these like, you know, what's that? Five months kind of in between, no, less than five months. My mass isn't very good. Three um, three months in between um, where, you know, I, I, I've been out, I'd maybe made, I can't remember, maybe at least two other trips afterwards because after that first one, I was just going there the once, but you know, like you'd be, you stand there outside somebody's tent and you see them sharing with you the only tin of food they have. They only have a tin of food and they are, they're like you you sit and eat with me you know like no no like I don't need it like <laughs> and they're there they want you to eat with them they'd be insulted if you didn't sit and eat with them and then they sit down they tell you their story and you and they say you know you're coming back right and you're like yeah I'm coming back you know you're not going to sit there and like I'm not going to lie to somebody in that situation I, I'm just not I'm not going to sit there and tell somebody yeah I'll come back and then not come back yeah you're hooked you're in at that point you know and I'd have um I, like I said, I'd have done anything I'd have done within reason, you know, I would, whatever, whatever that person had said to me, you know, you've got this thing. And if, if you give me this thing, that's going to make it not as bad here for me. I would say, yeah, OK, I'll get it for you. Mm-hmm.
1: So you sent me a message a couple of months ago when we were planning this interview and you mentioned that one thing you wanted was a journalist. You wanted yeah. a journalist to, to write about this. So listeners, yeah, absolutely. are you listening? Yeah, I mean, That's his one thing. JAPE's one thing is he wants a journalist to write about this. So if you're out there, you know how to find him, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I think it's it's like raising the profile as much as possible. I think the other thing that, is, that crossed my mind, obviously, because, um, you know, we're stateside now in this conversation, and we're not doing as much work in the States as, as we could, you know, like we could be helping more people at the border down in, in Mexico where people are um is it tuana where they where you know people um you know out in, out in tents and things a lot of those guys would be eligible to use the service but we run a lot on word of mouth you know it's like lebanon is a big service for us because they all live in this camp and everybody knows each other and they've been there a lot of years and the, and the word travels and we help a lot of people there but somewhere like calais we have to work a lot harder because the population is is being spread out all the time by the police and being moved on and people don't know each other and likewise you know, like. Um, you know, down in, in Mexico or the southern states, you know, we are not supporting people there, but we'd be very happy to. And we could probably buy the phone credit quite easily on the on the wholesalers we have. So, you know, that would be great. You know, people are working with refugees in the Americas, um, and and they they those people that they're working with are without safe shelter or they're being held in detention or they're making a journey that's not safe, you know, we can help those guys. So point them our way.
1: Thank you. I really love that your attitude is. How can I help? And I can't wait till we get to celebrate the Jape Pierce Day around the world. Like there should be a day dedicated to you and your work,
0: where we all get to call you.
1: Yeah, <laughs> where we all get to call you on your little cracked phone. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a lot of people calling
2: me already. You know, like, <laughs> it's a, it's a weird it's a weird kind of um. Yeah, because I said I played music, you know, that was my hobby and I still do, I still play music and I, you know, I play gigs and things like that. And anyone who plays music, you know, quietly in the back, even if they don't admit it, quietly in the back of their head, they're like, I oh, wish I could kind of be famous and like I could be mm-hmm. a star at something. Now there's this weird, like really funny kind of celebrity cult that's developed around the phone credit guy, you know, like in mm-hmm. Calais, it was really funny when I went there after, just before the, the camp was kind of taken away, I went there, um, First time I'd gone there, people were like rushing around me, trying to grab pull on my arm, and like trying to ask me to help them with like help repairing their tent or like, have you got any shoes? Or do you know what I mean? But then the last time I went there, everyone was like, oh, you're like, was like pointing at me because they knew I was the phone credit guy and they were like trying to get selfies with me and stuff. And <laughs> it was just really funny to be in this refugee camp with like this weird, like, you know, like Beatlemania. Kind
1: of <laughs> you are a rock star yeah. in their eyes. Yeah. Amazing. That's it. When well, oh, it's like, a weird, like
2: the, yeah, I mean, I think it was like even funny to those guys too, you know, like they were kind of taking the mick, but it was like, there's this... There's this like there's so much funny stuff that happens that's like cross culture in our group because it's all online. And Google or Facebook just translates things automatically with um, varying success. Just some of the the different ways people are across cultures, the way it translates is like they find some of our ways really funny and we find some other things they do really funny. Um, There was a guy who photoshopped my face onto the side of a lorry like a photo of a lorry and it, and it said like, you know, phone credit for refugees with like my smiling face next to it. And that's like been like for like years since that's been a joke in the admin team. Like, you know, oh, well your face hasn't been on the side of a lorry and like you, you haven't really made it yet as a volunteer, like we haven't been recognized.
1: <laughs> oh, my like, God. You know, I don't know so. what a lorry is. Help me, help me.
2: <laughs> yeah. Like a truck, you know, like a, like oh. a, a semi, I like guess semi, I guess you guys would call it.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You know, you've made
1: um, it. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Tell us where we can find you and where we can help.
2: Okay. So, um, the easiest way to find us is just, you can find it on Google, you know, just Google phone credit for refugees. It's not a great or original name for a charity, but when I set this group up, I was like, if I was a refugee and I didn't speak much English, like what, what would I, what would I need? What words would make sense to me? So phone credit for refugees, that is what it is, you know, um, you can find it on Google and um, you can find it on Facebook and Facebook is where the community is. So search for phone credit for refugees. It's um, on Facebook. It's called phone credit for refugees and displaced people. And it's a slightly longer name, but the website will take you there. Otherwise, you know, if you just Google us, come and join the community. It's um, it's a really fun place to be. Every week we have this fundraiser like we talked about. But it's also a community that's shared by all of the people who are using the service. So there's this beautiful connection that we have. Um, so a lot of the people using the service call it the phone credit family. That's what that's like kind of the word they use. So they say thank you to the phone credit family when they get their credit, they post in the group. And then there'll be like people saying, no problem, you know, like good luck from Manchester and whatever it is, you know, sharing personal messages. So it's a great place mm-hmm.
0: to be. And I, I want to ask one last question before we totally wrap it up, because here's my curiosity Did this experience for you change? how you approach and play music as a musician
2: yeah i, I think this experience changed everything really in my mm-hmm. life it, like, what it taught me um so i mean there's a few things it's taught me so I, I recently i mean i got a better job as a result of it a better day job um i lost like four stone in weight with the same kind of mentality um thinking that i guess that i'd learned from this group and it's the power that we have of small cumulative actions so Like I said, I didn't start off thinking I'm going to make this big charity and help tens of thousands of people. I started off thinking I'm going to buy this guy phone credit, just did it. And then I did it again. And then I found other people who could do it. And then I did that again and so on. And like, it made me realize that all the stuff that's in front of you is made of smaller stuff. And nothing is really you you can't be stopped by anything, really. But if you just start doing something, you know, just start somewhere and you'll get through it. You will get there if you just keep doing it again and again and again and again you'll look back and you'll be like wow this is like now in the thousands and i just never even thought about it
0: thanks for answering that question small accumulative steps thank you
2: yeah and that's totally true you know if you want to play guitar really well you're going to have to put the hours in or whatever but just don't think that it's too small to make a difference just do it
1: Hmm. gorgeous thank you we appreciate you phone credit for refugees you've been listening to jape today please go ahead and make a donation join the conga line on fridays and know that we appreciate you and so do your brothers and sisters
2: thanks very much thanks very much for having me guys
0: thank you We want to thank you for listening to this episode of Are You Waiting for Permission? If you like what you heard, please like, comment, subscribe, and leave us a review. We would sure appreciate it. Also, we want to give a special shout out to Amy Shelley and Gary Grundy of High Fiction for letting us use their music in this podcast. All right, my friends, until next week. Bye.